this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is currently walking through the second third of Dante's masterpiece comedy, the second third known as Purgatorio. We are in Canto 1. We are at lines 28 through 48. Oh, a little longer chunk than we've done before here. We're going to meet our first soul outside of Dante and Virgil, but we're not going to meet too much of him. Just his first words. I want to stop after his first introduction. Remember, unlike the episodes with Inferno, there are no funny voices here. You have to figure out who's speaking, and the dialogue here is all from this strange lone man who the pilgrim meets before he starts up purgatory. This is my English translation, you can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You can drop comments there. You can read along. You can print it off. Do as you will. Otherwise, you can just sit back and listen to my modern English translation from the medieval Florentine of Purgatorio, Canto 1, lines 28 through 48. As I made my gaze turn away from those stars and turned myself a bit toward the opposite pole, where the Big Dipper had already sat, I saw close by me a single lone old man. His whole appearance deserved so much respect that no son could have given his father more. He sported a long beard that was dappled with white, similar in color to what was on top of his head. It all fell onto his chest in double strands. The rays of light from those four blessed stars bestowed such an illumination on his face that it looked to me as if he were basking in the sun. Who are you who've come up along the dark stream to have then made your escape from the eternal prison, he said, shaking his honored locks? Who'd you have for a guide? And what'd you have for a lantern that lets you exit from the deep, dark night that always shrouds Hell's Valley in blackness. Have the laws of the abyss been abrogated somehow? Or has a new directive been issued in heaven so that you, the damned, may now come to my seaside banks? We're going to leave it right there at the end of his first words. They are strange in and of themselves. I want to talk through this figure a bit. But before we get to all of that, I want to tell you something that's a little bit of a translation problem, a minor thing, but I might as well bring it up. Right at the start of the passage, when Dante the Pilgrim turns away from those four stars and looks toward the opposite pole, that would be the North Pole, he says that the Big Dipper had already said. Really, what he says in the medieval Florentine is il carro, the wagon or the the cart. In English, we sometimes call this the wain. It's a piece of Ursa Major, and it is what we in the Northern Hemisphere often call the Big Dipper. Dante didn't call it that in the poem. I named it the Big Dipper because that's what we would know. I believe when I read this passage through in the read-through of Cantos 1 and 2, I believe I said Ursa Major at that point, which the Big Dipper is a piece of the larger constellation of Ursa Major or the Big Bear. It's very familiar in the northern skies, and you'll notice that it is only visible from the northern skies. You might ask, 
How did Dante know that, that you couldn't see the Big Dipper in the Southern Hemisphere? Well, he's clearly intuited it because it never sets. In the Northern Hemisphere, it moves around, gets near the horizon, dips a little low, particularly depending on where you are in the Northern Hemisphere. But still, he would see it as a constant. He knows that when he looks toward the North Pole here in this passage, that what he calls the wane, the cart, the wagon, Id Carro, has already set because, of course, it's beyond his range of vision. All right, let's turn to the passage itself. It starts, as I made my gaze turn away from those stars, those are those four stars we talked about last time, and turn myself a bit toward the opposite pole where the Big Dipper had already set, I saw close by me a single lone old man. Let's just talk about the pilgrim's movement for a minute. The pilgrim hasn't moved much. He has turned one way and turned the other way. So he turned to the south, and now he's turned toward the north. But the pilgrim is still standing where he is. When the pilgrim wakes up in Inferno, we don't actually know how long he sticks around those dark woods. We know it jumps from I came awake in a dark wood to suddenly the poet remembering it and oh gosh I hope I can be able to tell this and then the next thing we know the pilgrim is exiting the wood and climbing that mountain you know the mountain that the sun is rising behind okay fair enough but he's still in motion here you'll notice that it is not in motion. It is instead stillness or a lack of motion. We should really pay attention to the differentiation here because this seems a much more, what do I want to say, peaceful standing and watching. I want to come back to why that is in a minute. There's not any dithering here. We don't get the sense that that pilgrim is, oh, which way do I go? Which way do I go? Instead, Instead, he seems to just be turning and turning and looking around. It's a very distinct difference from the activity in Inferno 1, in which he wakes up in the dark wood. We don't know how long he's there, but pretty soon he's starting to climb that mountain. He's getting out. The beasts appear. He falls back down. You know, I mean, that all happens pretty fast. And the motion is pretty frenetic, even like a person coming out of really turbulent waters, if you remember, and the lake of my heart and all that kind of stuff that goes on in those opening bits. This is so different. It's so serene. And that may call us back to another bit of Inferno. In the schismatics, that pouch, the evil pouch of the schismatics, if you remember, at Inferno 28, lines 52 through 54, Dante the Pilgrim has seen Mohammed and Ali. They've been split open as the schismatics are, and it becomes apparent that Dante is a living soul. And if you remember, at lines 52 through 54 of Canto 28, something very wild happens. The schismatics, all cut up into a million pieces, stop and look at Dante with wonder, forgetting their pains. And we really paused on that in the Inferno episode, that there is a way that wonder can overcome even the pains of hell. Seems to me that we are in a similar spot here. This is a spot of great wonder. The gorgeous heavens, everything around us is beautiful. It is 
full of wonder from the very get-go. He turns from the South Pole to the North Pole. He sees that the Big Dipper isn't there in his line of sight. And then he sees close by him a single lone old man. And we want to talk about this for a minute. First of all, let's ask the question, was this guy always here? I don't know the answer to that. The poem seems to have him just emerge out of the text. And to be honest, you know, as an old literary scholar, that's what I love is that this guy just kind of emerges out of the text. I don't know. Was he always standing there? Did he appear? Did he disappear? I don't know. Later, if you remember the read-through of Cantos 1 and 2, he's going to disappear and then quickly reappear. But for the moment, I don't know that from this passage. I don't know how long he's been standing there. And I love that he just seems to emerge from the text itself. If you know anything about comedy, then you know who this is. And if you've read Purgatorio, you know who this is. But in this passage that we just read, you don't know who this is. And I want to stick right there for a minute. Why? Because Dante doesn't name him. And because Dante leaves it so open-ended here with this figure, I want to talk about this figure without identifying him. Here's why. In the commentary tradition, if you're reading another translation of Purgatorio, you're going to see a footnote, and they're going to identify this character almost right from the get-go. And say, oh, this is so-and-so, and that's blah-blah-blah, and that means blah-blah-blah. They're going to go on and on about this character. That's great. But when you do that, when you solve the riddle in advance, then you miss the details that are there. There's a way that naming him, that is not following Dante's lead, naming him obscures him. He suddenly becomes pieces of a footnote and you suddenly be able to categorize him in your brain. You would suddenly be able to put him somewhere. I don't want that. Let's just look at who this is. Let me say one thing before we look at who this is, and this relates to the podcast episode so far. I have caught myself several times saying Mount Purgatory, Mount Purgatory, Mount Purgatory. Now, if you heard the read-through of Cantos 1 through 2, you know we eventually come to know that there's a mountain sitting right here behind us. But at this point in the poem, through line 48 of the first canto of Purgatorio, we don't know that there's a mountain. If you go back to Inferno and Virgil's explanation for Satan's fall, he says that Satan hit the earth and may, may, there's a conditional quality to what Virgil says, may have caused a displacement of land above them and certainly did cause the continents of the Northern Hemisphere to flee away from Satan. We don't even know there that it's a mountain. 80 million footnotes at that point say, oh, he's talking about Mount Purgatory, but we don't know that. It's going to emerge that there is a mountain here. And I think that's really important. And I, I have caught myself saying Mount Purgatory. And every time I do it, I feel ugh, inside. <laughs> I feel a clench inside because I think to myself, you're doing a disservice to the readers of the poem because Dante hasn't yet told us there's a mountain. We don't know anything. All we know is that there's a sky, a gorgeous sky, Asian sapphire blue, beautiful, four stars, no Big Dipper, 
and now an old man. We don't even necessarily know that Virgil is here, although we know it from the end of Inferno. Of course, Virgil has exited with Dante the Pilgrim, but so far, we haven't actually laid eyes on Virgil in this passage. We've just been looking at the stars, and now we've turned and looked at an old man, and maybe that's the way we should leave it, because to fill in all the details at this point in advance, to be a smarty-pants reader and say, oh, I'm red ahead, and I know what's going on, makes us miss some of the important details. Like these. First of all, this is a single lone old man. His appearance deserves more respect. No son could have given his father more. Well, that is a very filial gesture, a very familial gesture, (laughs) a paterfamilias gesture. Dante seems to think that this guy standing next to him has a fatherly relationship to him. And that's our first little notice of this person. It's the first time we might wince inside because Dante had a very father-son relationship to Virgil. This is the first time we see somebody who may legitimately be a rival for Virgil and will, in fact, in many ways, theologically (laughs) and in terms of the Christian story of salvation, will indeed be a rival for Virgil. But we're going to hold all that off and just say what we know is that Dante had a very filial relationship with Virgil, and now here's somebody with whom he can have another filial relationship, somebody who deserves a great deal of respect. We also can say that he sports this long beard that is dappled white. It's not completely white. It's dappled white, similar in color to what was on top of his head. It fell under his chest in double strands. Now, if you are really up on your Lucan (laughs) and really up on the Pharsalia, you might be able to identify the character from that set of three lines, but I doubt it. I think that only in retrospect, when you know who this is, can you jump back to Lucan and say, oh, 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 there it is in the Pharsalia. It's a little bit of a hint, but it isn't much of a hint. Instead, we should think about this character not as out of Lucan's Pharsalia, but just for what he is. He's got this big beard, it's dappled white, and it's forked, and it kind of merges with the hair on his head. You know what he looks like? He looks like Moses in the mosaics of the Florentine baptistry. I dare say that many of Dante's Florentine readers would first think of that, the portrait of Moses in the baptistry. This brings up all kinds of questions about reverence directed toward this character. One of the things we may miss in this passage is that this figure is seen when Dante the Pilgrim turns toward the north, and perhaps that's important to the passage. Dante has been looking to the south toward those four stars over the South Pole, and now he's turned toward, as we discussed, the Big Dipper, and here he sees this figure in the northerly direction. Maybe that's important. A figure that links back to the land masses, as Dante imagines it, that cover the globe. Remember, Dante thinks all of the land masses are up in the north. They've fled away from Satan's fall here. This figure is in 
that direction. If we just name the figure straight out, then we might miss this, that we're looking perhaps at a link between the northern climes and this spot here in the Antipodes, this spot on the other side of the globe. And those stars, they're illuminating his face. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen stars illuminate anyone's face. I've seen the moon illuminate people's faces. But on a really dark night in rural New England where I live, people appear to be just vanished into darkness around you. These stars are so forceful, so present, that they seem to be illuminating this guy's face. So there's a tie, but between this guy and those stars, so much so that it looks like he's basking in the sun, which you should really think there must be a really close tie between him and those stars. That tie will become part of the story of this figure and part of the story of Purgatorio as a whole. But yet there's more. Those first words he used to describe him, a single lone old man, Veglio, a Veglio, an old man. Dante has used that term one other time so far in comedy for the old man of Crete. Remember that after we see Capaneus on the burning sands, then we hear Virgil tell about this statue that is inside a mountain in Crete, and it's you know made of different kinds of metals all the way down to the terracotta-ish feet, and it's weeping. Remember all this? And it's weeping, and those tears form the rivers of hell. Ah, well, here's another old man, and a term is linking the two of them. If that one was crying over the world and perhaps over the decay of the world, then this one is very different. This one is open to possibility, but we want to talk about that in a minute. That one is locked in a mountain. This one is appearing and disappearing in this landscape. That one is crying. This one, not sure exactly what he's doing. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he's certainly not crying, but he does have a resonance inside of him. And let's talk about that resonance for just a second. The resonance is to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 14 through 17. It's to Mary Magdalene at the resurrection. When Mary Magdalene appears in the garden at the tomb after the crucifixion of Jesus, she actually runs into, in John's Gospel, the resurrected Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him. And she thinks he's just a gardener taking care of the cemetery, a cemetery worker. And she essentially says, you know, where have you taken the body? And then she recognizes him. And it's a whole recognition scene, a poignant scene, actually, in the Gospel of John. Well, this has a little bit of that feel underneath it, that Dante's standing there and he turns to see this, well, in that case, with Mary Magdalene's case, it would be a younger man, but in this case, an older man, and it has this kind of, hmm, who are you exactly? And I don't know who you are. And the pilgrim clearly doesn't know who this is. In fact, Virgil is going to have to prompt him toward who this is in the next passage. So that little resonance sitting behind him from the gospel story should automatically set him up as very different from the old man of Crete. 
he seems to be very legalistic. He says, Who are you who've come up along the dark stream to have then made your escape from the eternal prison? So he says this like, what? We, we know that little stream trickles down that hole toward Cocytus? Well, who are you? And then he says, who'd you have for a guide? And what'd you have for a lantern that lets you exit from the deep dark night that always shrouds Hell's Valley in blackness? Notice his insistence on the lack of light in Hell. But (laughs) the great thing is he asks these questions, who'd you have for a guide and what'd you have for a lantern? And he's standing right there. His name's Virgil. He's he's right beside me. That's who I had for my guide. And that's who I had for my lantern. He's right here, ta-da, standing out here on the shores of purgatory. But he keeps going on, this old man, have the laws. Notice how, how legalistic he is. Have the laws of the abyss been abrogated? Or has a new directive been issued in heaven? I mean, this kind of talk of, like, laying down the law and, and, and the laws of how things go so that you, the damned, may now come to my seaside banks. And notice his ownership, my this is my place, my seaside banks, all kind of property talk, this legalistic talk out of him. It's it's interesting that this is how he starts. He starts essentially with, in Christian theology, the law. And if you know anything about St. Paul's theology, you know, that's a huge cue in the passage. He's starting with the old law in Christian theology, the old covenant, as it were, and is getting ready to run into the new covenant. But the new covenant's been there all along. I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about something else. This figure is really old hat. If you think about it, he's acting like Minos, like Cerberus, like Plutus. He's much more articulate than they are. Well, Minos gets his words in, but not Plutus with his clucking sounds, not Cerberus. But there are these blocking figures, right? Uh, even the even the giants that surround Cocytus. There are these blocking figures all the way down hell. What we're set up for is kind of old hat. Another one of those guys that says, you know, I'm not going to let you pass. And like Karen uh, with his boat, I'm not going to let you pass. And then Dante faints and somehow passes. I think that this character's first speech seems intentionally blocking because it's what we're used to from inferno unless we're paying attention. If we're paying attention, we see that this character is open to change. Have the laws of the abyss been abrogated somehow? Has a new directive been issued in heaven so that you, the damned, may now come to my seaside banks? He has... Oh, what do I want to say? The um, implicitly, he's allowing for the action of grace, or to use our words in this podcast, he is intentionally allowing for love to move the fence. It may lie under his initial blocking questions, but yet underneath those questions run this concept that well. Meh, Maybe laws can change. Maybe the damned can get up here. To use a much bigger word that we started using in the last episode of this podcast, underneath it runs love. 
that which moves the fence. And this character is open to the idea that the fence may be moved. Yes, his initial conversation is rather stern and blocking. Yet at the same time, he seems to allow for the possibility that the rules might change. Big passage, just letting him be himself for a bit. I think that's so important. Let's read it again. Purgatorio, Canto 1, lines 28 through 48. As I made my gaze turn away from those stars and turned myself a bit toward the opposite pole where the Big Dipper had already set, I saw close by me a single lone old man. His whole appearance deserved so much respect that no son could have given his father more. He sported a long beard that was dappled with white, similar in color to what was on top of his head. It all fell onto his chest in double strands. The rays of light from those four blessed stars bestowed such an illumination on his face that it looked to me as if he were basking in the sun. Who are you? who've come up along the dark stream to have then made your escape from the eternal prison, he said, shaking his honored locks. Who'd you have for a guide? And what'd you have for a lantern that lets you exit from the deep dark night that always shrouds Hell's Valley in blackness? Have the laws of the abyss been abrogated somehow, or has a new directive been issued in heaven so that you, the damned, may now come to my seaside banks? You can tell I just love Purgatorio. I think at this moment it is my favorite part of the poem. Every year when I read comedy to myself (laughs) at the front of every year, many of you know I do this at the start of every year, I read through comedy sometimes in about two sittings, sometimes over a month. But when I read through it lately, I've just constantly been dumbfounded by Purgatorio. And I've been dumbfounded by the possibilities of love and openness and forgiveness that it exhibits throughout. I can't wait for us to go on and discover those together. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it in the analytics. It really helps if you rate it. And if you drop down and write a review, even just a nice podcast or thanks for the walk, that would really help me. Thanks for being on the walk with me. I appreciate the conversations I have with you online or on my website. I'm Mark Scarborough, and let's go on and figure out who this solitary old man is. Mm-hmm.